Good morning, RadioNext.tv on the Cool Groove site. And this morning, Dr. Mark Echo, Harold H.B. Bell, here every Wednesday morning, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, warping and woofing on the radio. <laughs> What's up, Doc? Hey, man, warp and woof, the vertical horizontal threads that make fabric, Colossians 117. By him, all things are held together. Great show today. Uh, you're touching on a subject matter here today, Doc. I mean, we, we went in last week with the young ladies, and now we have the testosterone in the room. <laughs> and uh, all the men in here today, we uh, have a different angle in the way that we try to prevent crime in our neighborhoods. And so we're going to hear loud and clear uh, from people who are out there on the front line from a faith-based perspective, from the uh, grassroots organizational in the city, uh, nonprofit organization, and also from somebody who's working in uh, uh, crime prevention, yep. real life every day, but a warrior trying to save and redeem lives. There it is. Uh, tell them about Comenius before we get into today's show. You bet. Comenius is a bridge, a bridge uh, between high school and college for young people going into public university. It's also a bridge between black and white churches, uh, helping unite churches simply by bringing people together on ra on our radio show. It's also a bridge into the culture, helping under uh, Christians understand, churches understand, how to think differently and Christianly and distinctively as Christians about culture. Uh, that's what we do at Comenius. Absolutely. Well, uh, um, what we're going to do is take the musical break, and then when we come back, I'm going to sit back and listen to this conversation today and uh, try not to get involved <laughs> too much in this conversation. But you're listening to Warp and Wolf Radio on the Cool Groove site. We will be right back. RadioNext.tv. You see that theme? Did you hear that theme? Yeah. I want to be a better man. You're I don't so know how good, I do man. this. <laughs> I am scared of me. Dr. Mark Echo, Harold H.B. Bell. We are in the uh, studio here, Warping Wolf Radio, on the Cool Groove site. Doctor, introduce your guest, please, and let's get into this dialogue. Sure. Sir. Yeah. <clears throat> you introduced this so well, H.B., before we went on break here, uh, the idea that we have folks on the front line. And, and when we talk about being on the front line, we're talking about being on the front line just not just in terms of boots on the ground, though that's important, but also ideas Ideas, ideas, ideas that are uh, practical to the life that we live, that they're, they're sensible, they're dependable, they're universal. Uh, all of those things matter to us. And so we're really in, into this discussion today, uh, pushing back crime and poverty with community. So in studio today, David Cedarquist, pastor, director, Brookside Church, also Brookside Community Development Corporation. We have Andrew Falk, who is here from Sagamore Institute, uh, who is going to help us understand a little bit better about reentry programs, but also in terms of research. This is where the ideas come in. Uh, folks who are really doing data and research uh, that also care about the practical results. And then, of course, our friend Kevin Russell is here, agent of redemption, uh, works for the Indianapolis faith-based parole. Uh, this is something that is uh, needed, frankly, across the country, but we have a wonderful opportunity here in Indianapolis, mm -hmm. and so we're glad you gentlemen are here with us today. Uh, let's just go around the table, kind of introduce yourselves, if you wouldn't mind, um, and give us just a general sense of who you are, where you come from, family, church, you know, all of that good stuff. Sure. Kevin, start with you. Sure. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, uh, married, uh, got a nine-year-old little daughter. Um, I practiced architecture for about 16 years here in Indianapolis and been doing men's ministry for longer than that. And the short version is, is God called me up out of all of that and into faith-based parole uh, because that's literally what he put me on this earth to do is, is to walk beside men in their relationship with Christ. And he's, he's put a burden or a passion on my heart to do that. 
with the least of these who happen to be on paper on parole so that's great david yeah um married for almost 13 years in december have four kids seven six three and one um got into urban ministry about 10 years ago and moved here to indianapolis about three and took over a church in an underprivileged neighborhood um, that was attached to a large mega church and um, god has just done amazing things for um, us and for our community as we've sought reconciliation with um, diversity not just on an ethnic level but also a socioeconomic level and um, we just um, are walking out the brokenness of our neighborhood together and solving problems in a gospel-centered way uh, to seek the peace of this city and when it comes to our ministry um, it is probably not the most attractional ministry in the city um, it is very uncomfortable because um, a multiplicity of people come in the door um, but as those people come in the door and commit together to unify around Christ um, we see a greater picture of the kingdom that we didn't see before and so when people take risks on being part of our community engaging in our community um, it allows uh, their gifts to be present and it allows for us to grow as a family to uh, be what we need to be for each other but then also for the neighborhood and so i just have the privilege of being the maybe chief unifier and the chief uh um provoker of um um trying to engage real issues in the neighborhood um not in a theoretical sense but in a risk-taking faith stepping um uh, way so that we can see reconciliation happen as Jesus has called us to be reconcilers. And so that's great. Um, we love it. That's great. We're glad you're there. And Andrew, tell us about yourself. Uh, my name is Andrew Falk. I'm married, have four kids, I'm trained as an attorney. I spent time in private practice, spent time working for the state government, federal government, um, been with the Sagamore Institute. Um, in an uh, informal basis for a couple years and then more formally for the last two and a half years um, and um, came to Sagamore to write a report on Indiana's criminal justice reforms and the impact of those reforms on our criminal justice system um, and as a part of that was invited to visit the women's prison um, I understand Dave's comment about not being the most attractive ministry because I'll admit I was not never really wanted to be a part of a prison ministry um, but I went to the women's prison um, a year and a half ago, and like I say, I never left. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, I have, but mm -hmm. um, I was invited to, to speak to a public policy class, and um, within three or four months, I was helping to teach that public policy class, and now that's where I, if I could, I would spend all my time. That's uh, great. That's awesome. Yeah, these are all different kinds of boots on the ground. You know, Kevin is here as a parole officer. And David is here as a pastor, and Andrew is here as somebody who is in uh, prison ministries. We want to make sure to add ministries right after the word prison there because we don't want anybody to think you're there actually <laughs> in prison. But nonetheless, uh, let me uh, start with you, Andrew, because I think it's important for people to get a sense of where you're coming from. Give us the general background to the concept of Sagamore, maybe what the word means, but also uh, where this thing is going. Sagamore means wise counsel, and so Sagamore as a uh, public policy research institution 
is in the business of ideas. And you talked about that in your introduction. Um, Sagamore is all about figuring out what are the hard issues, what are the pressing issues of our day, and how can we, how can we address those? What, how can we propose innovative solutions to the problems of our society? Um, but the thing that, it, that I love about Sagamore is it's not just a um, theoretical ivy tower, you know, we're, we're going to research problems and we're going to propose solutions, but we're also very um, dedicated to implementing those changes, and so um, it's a it's a nonprofit incubator. Um, and at any one time, there's four, five, six organizations that are, that are starting at the Sagamore, applying those ideas. Um, we've had a, a couple of senior fellows in in, in Africa um, teaching over there about um, sustainable agriculture, and we have people in the public schools starting um, new programs there. And so uh, the organization um, that that I'm helping to start constructing our future is also being incubated by Sagamore and helping to start implementing some of the research that I've done on um, the challenges we face in criminal justice and figuring out how, what, what can we do to help. Well, let's jump from the issue of criminal justice over here to Kevin. And, and Kevin, just kind of make the bridge for us, if you wouldn't mind, between uh, the ideas, that is, the concerns that everybody has about issues concerning crime and the, uh, the idea of what you do every day. So how do you connect uh, the concepts that we're after here, community pushing back crime, and what you do daily? How does, it, how does your work impact the mission of this particular program today? Oh, I see it as God has called me to live 10 feet from Hell's Gate. Um, because literally, uh, it, men and women on parole, regardless of the neighborhood that they live in, what their socioeconomic uh, position is, uh, or whether they are in or, or what type of community they are in, meaning who's their network of friends. The bottom line is, is, is these men and women are the least of these that we read about in scripture. And I believe that it is my personal responsibility and the responsibility of the church to engage the least of these. Mm. Now, I personally believe that God puts, he, he wires each of us to uniquely be able to respond to certain types of least of these. Mm. He's wired me to deal with, to literally have a passion for walking beside men. Mm. And so I've spent the majority of my time in men's ministry inside churches, and that was fabulous. But it was, for me, I've come to see that all of that was just, that was the proving ground. That was the preparation for him sending me out to the edge, to where everything is real. And so where I live, my life is, is, is I live walking beside. Part of what I'm blessed to do is, is I work for Indiana State Parole. And so they challenged me and charged me with starting the first faith-based parole. And so there are, there are faith-based programming opportunities for men and women on the inside. But when a man or a woman comes outside the gate, he, has very little, he or she has very little support network. Or that support network that they had previously picks right back up, which, which usually is not a positive influence. And so part of my job, part of my responsibility is to create community and to do that, to walk beside people, to break down some of those perceptions of what parole look like and, and help people to see that that can be a positive opportunity, that I'm here. 
and that's why I, I strive to develop a relationship with all of my folks so that they can call me in the middle of the night and say, I'm about ready to do something stupid. I'm standing at, on the porch of the drug house and I'm about ready to use. I need you to talk me down. I need you to pray with me. I need you to come get me, whatever that is. Some folks open up, some folks don't. But all I can do is step toward those who do. 10 feet from hell's gate reminds me of that classic statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 16 uh, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and just by the way that famous line is offensive that is the church is to be on the offensive so when when we hear you say that you know your boots on the ground you're getting calls in the middle of the night you're dealing with individuals that really have tremendous difficulties this is what we're talking about, somebody who's actually uh, knocking down the gates of hell. Now, jumping over to David for a minute, you know, uh, Kevin mentioned that he, de he deals with the least of these. You mentioned, David, that you were talking about uh, very unattractive or maybe attraction-less, perhaps, uh, folks. Tell us about some of the, uh, the folks that are invested in your church uh, for whom you are committed to community. Yeah, um, I mean, when you talk about our neighborhood, it's one of six um, neighborhoods that are in the crime hotspot watch. Um, you're talking about prostitution. They call our neighborhood the uh, on 10th Street the Dirty Dime. Um, certain prostitutes prostitute certain sections, and certain prostitutes are knocked off certain sections based on who has more authority in the neighborhood. you got a level of trap houses that... Uh, drug addiction um, is free and rampant, uh, where men are predators or even women are predators to addict those around them to the point where then they have to spend their money and then they lose their lives. Um, there's oppressive landlords that um, are 70% of our neighborhood, um, the houses are owned by out-of-city, out-of-state owners. And so um, even to get stable housing, it's oppressive because if a hot water heater goes off and a 12-month lease at month six and the landlord in New York doesn't want to change it, well, guess what? They don't have any power or authority to be able to make any adjustments, and they live with it, and then they get out. And um, when you have that, I mean, and I could go on and on and on about the brokenness of our neighborhood, but when you, when oppressive factors are involved not only from an outside sense, but also from an inside sense where you are addicted to opiates or uh, marijuana or any illegal drug or, or even the sheer amount of medicine that is being uh, prescribed by doctors to our neighborhood to the point where you are oppressed in that nature. Most of our family members don't know even a vision of hope that would get them out of it. And so um, to share the love of Christ in a way where they see that there is hope beyond what the cards that they have been dealt in life and the oppressive factors that have um, kept them down and the system that has created uh, no opportunity. Um, when you have a throwaway group of people and you show them what the kingdom of heaven looks like and who Jesus is and what he wants to do in their lives, things change. Yeah. 
and hope, but change is not on a year grant period. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Change happens over a decade to 30 years that we're saying we're investing in this neighborhood and not leaving because we believe that God is a reconciler and that he can even reconcile the deeply broken areas. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the reason why it's not sexy is because we are dealing with uh, 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 there, there one, if you deal with one issue, you realize that the issue is six to tenfold, mm -hmm. that, that it is way deeper than you could ever understand. And you can't just target an issue and say, well, I can fix this piece. You have to think very holistically on how to deal with mm -hmm. it. And when it comes to dealing with those issues, I can't fix the government issue. Mm -hmm. I can't fix the mm -hmm. systemic issue. I can't fix the New York landlord that's writing off the house on Olney because he don't give a rip about the people in our neighborhood. I can't fix that, but I can create a sense of peace and solace and try to buy up some houses in the neighborhood, try to create some stability, be involved in the neighborhood school, be involved with the uh, parole and police and probation to the point where we can see some systemic change where they know that this isn't right and I'm going to advocate for you yeah, and this because is the, Jesus does. Yeah, this is huge. HB, we are uh, committed as Christians to the shalom, the Hebraic concept of wholeness, this is what David just spoke to, but all three of these guys are doing it from a different vantage point, but they're all doing the same thing. That's how you get whole. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Warp and Wolf Radio on the Cool Groove site. You're listening to RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. This is Warp and Wolf Radio. We come to you every Wednesday morning from 10 until noon, and our program is very broad. That is, we engage all kinds of issues around the Indianapolis community. One of our taglines here is out of Titus chapter 3, the three commands there, do good, do good, do good. So we're always looking for Christian folk who are doing good around Indianapolis. Our discussion topic today, the roundtable with three gentlemen here uh, from various aspects of life, are all men who are doing good in the neighborhood. We've have, we have Andrew Falk from the Sagamore Institute. We have David Cedarquist, pastor and also director of the community development uh, pro project down at Brookside. And then, of course, Kevin Russell is uh, working for Indiana Parole as a faith-based officer. So we wanted to come back in after our first section and talk about very specific issues as it relates to community and crime. And uh, maybe we'll just go the same way this time. Andrew, we'll start with you. Uh, how do issues of poverty, education, drugs, media income affect community and crime? You can take that any way you want, go in any direction you want to. I think the place I would start is the, the problem of mental illness, and I mean that that affects each of those categories so strongly. And as a church and as a society, we really need to address this because far too often um, individuals with with mental illness are taken to jail because that's the easiest thing, to, in quote, easiest thing to be done with them. And they end up in a in a system that is not really designed to deal with mental illness. And the the prison in which I work, the Indiana Women's Prison, is where many, if not most, of the women with mental illness are are located in the state. And um, they do the best they can, but it's far too little. Uh, they just aren't equipped for that. And so. Um, that's something that we really need to be figuring out. How can we address some of these issues in a much more effective way? Um, they're not, our, our criminal justice system is not really designed 
Um, it's not intended to be dealing with that, but that's, that's an issue that we really need to figure out. Mental illness, for those of us who have dealt with this personally in our own homes with family members, is, uh, is a very difficult topic. It's one not to be taken lightly, uh, but it's one that I hear over and over and over again from community leaders, from pastors, from uh, police officers, and also from those in the prison system themselves. You know, there are some times when I think about things like this when I think we really have not moved all that far away from the snake pits of Gowanda, New York, and the awfulness of how we used to take care of, and that's an awful way to even say it, but the way we used to house uh, mentally ill uh, folks, and things really haven't changed all that much since then. But uh, let's uh, go to the pastor here. David, What, from your perspective, poverty, education, drugs, median income, how does that affect community and crime? I think those issues um, are, 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 are the fruit of the problem, is that right. all those things um, are exactly what's happening in neighborhoods, especially underprivileged neighborhoods, because of the lack of access and protection mm-hmm. and even um, uh, gospel-centeredness. I mean, honestly, the only thing that's going to change any of this is not public policy or... Um, I mean, we've tried public policy and Christians also have got tried in the 70s, 80s, 90s to get involved in politics. And where did it take us? Um, It's never really brought us to any place that um, there's holistic transformation happening. And honestly, things are even getting worse. I mean, uh, for individuals, especially when you look at the rate of wealth to the top 2%, 1%, compared to poverty getting less more and more and more it's it's there's more people that are in uh poverty than they're in a wealth class and so i think it's just the fruit of the effects of a lack of a group of people that are diverse coming together to be what jesus has called us to be is a community that builds up that uh takes people from their brokenness and build them up to be who God has called them to be. And God may have not called them to be middle-class citizens. God may have not called them to be uh, homeowners, but in a sense, it's where a group of people come together and we fight these issues, the fruit of these issues in our neighborhoods to the point where we can hope in something different. And ultimately, I think it comes down to access. We're not, we are not missional or missionaries enough in these broken areas. And we're more worried about, um, um, our, ourselves, our wealth, our uh, our beliefs, our building up knowledge. Like we're holding ourselves hostage in our church to the point where we're not we're we're ignoring the main fruits of these issues, and we are not being a community to the community. We're being a community maybe together in a sense, uh, but it's not fighting the crime or the poverty, the education barriers, or the drugs that are in my neighborhood. And so the church has to be called to something bigger than themselves, and often times the bigger than themselves are what they don't understand. And David if, David yeah. has well addressed some of these issues, even in your earlier comments when you talked about the holistic issue. So the issues that we're talking about here really are a wholeness, have a wholeness about them. Mm-hmm. They really can't be separated or teased out from each other. They're all part of the same fabric uh, that we're dealing with. Right. Uh, when I think about this, Kevin, I was just reminded of uh, something that you do only from Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, where just this last weekend, ABC News ran a video of this wonderful uh, opportunity. In fact, I saw you post this this morning. So uh, I wanted you just to kind of give us an overview of what that video was 
and then talk about these issues of education, drugs, and, and so on as it relates to community and crime. Sure. So the, the ABC uh, snippet this morning was a video where there was a, a man, he was a, he was a, a white supremacist, and <clears throat> he was having a tattoo removed uh, that was a swastika. And the impetus for his change of heart and his change in who he is was because his probation officer was a black female. And so this woman, who had authority in his life, stepped into his life, but rather than, um, rather than do that in a negative way, she did that in a, in a Proverbs 11.10 way, right? where she, as someone who has authority, someone who has the ability to influence, she did that well. So she spoke and acted righteously. Now, I have no idea whether this woman was a, a believer or not, but what she did impacted this man to the point where his whole worldview on race changed. Mm -hmm. And that, in and of itself, is a beautiful thing. Um, and so where I come at this question is, is yes, I, I affirm and I embrace all of these things that need to be addressed, whether it's jobs, whether it's housing, all these barrier busters that, that, that the reentry community loves to talk about. But I would say, yes, we need to address those. But what I heard my friend say a minute ago, David, he said, don't, in the programming, in what we do, don't run past relationship. Mm -hmm. So yes, we must do all of these things. We must address jobs, we must address housing. But we can't do that outside of real, authentic relationship. Because the bottom line is, is that Jesus is the only agent of sustained change. Now, when I think about my caseload, I really have two different parts of my caseload. I've got a faith-based caseload, people who voluntarily participate and they want to discuss. But that is all denominations, all faiths. I've got Muslims, I've got you name it, Wiccans, Native Americans. I've had them or have other individuals on my caseload. The other half is the impact caseload, which is the Indianapolis Parole Accountability Team. That is a joint venture between Indiana State Parole and IMPD. Short version is anybody with a serious violent felony that's coming back to Marion County rolls to impact. And there is a parole agent and a police officer who supervise this individual. The whole goal is how do we help this man stay out of prison? How do we help his family? How do we influence? So that what that probation officer did in the ABC bit is exactly what impact does. And each of those, whether on the faith-based side or on the impact side, each of those is rooted in community, is rooted in relationship. One of them is a relationship that's horizontal between myself and that man, but then also goes vertical. The other impact is just straight horizontal, all right? Faith is not a part of that. However, like we were talking about during the break, part of the reason why I love partnering with Brookside is uh, when David talked about some parts of the ministry that he's involved with are unattractive, well, it's unattractive both ways, mm -hmm. meaning there are members of his congregation and of his community who see me as a parole officer, and, and I am not attractive to them. They don't like law enforcement, and yet... They don't like the popo. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, now, when I'm in community, I'm breaking bread with people, I get to preach, they see me, and they see law enforcement differently, and that has a different 
approach. Mm -hmm. This is all important to this theological concept. When we think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, and for those listening live and for those who are going to pick this up later in the podcast, we have iTunes as well as podcasts on both of our sites, warpandwoof.org and cominiusinstitute.com. When you pick these things up or when you're listening right now, hear this about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives all of pe- all of the people in the church different gifts. So we have three different individuals here with different gifts this morning. Come at these issues from a different vantage point. But let me say this to those who are listening and who are thinking to themselves, yeah, but. Everybody starts with a yeah, but. So, yeah, but what can I do? Well, what you can do is whatever you're impassioned about, whatever you're gifted to do, however you have been given, whatever it is, Maybe you go down to Brookside and read books to third graders because when we know that if you don't read by the time you're at a third grade, you are in a deep hole. Or maybe you are the one who uh, is a multimillionaire and is convicted uh, that you need to give money to programs that are going to help folks in this regard. Or maybe you actually have a penchant toward law enforcement. Maybe you've served. Maybe you've done tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Maybe you have decided, you know what, I'm going to use the Christian message in a different way than it's ever been used before. We are talking about all of those kinds of things this morning. The folks that are doing this frontline stuff are you folks who are listening. You are the ones that can make an impact. HB, we're going to take a one music break. And we are going to come right back. You're listening to RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site, Warp and Woof Radio. We will be right back. We are back, RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. This is Warp and Woof Radio. We, you come, we come to you every Wednesday from 10 until noon. And every week we deal with issues and concerns around Indianapolis. This week we are dealing with the issue of crime and how community prevents crime. And we have with us Andrew from the Sagamore Institute, David Cedarquist who is pastor down at Brookside, and Kevin Russell, who is agent of redemption at Indiana Parole. I wanted to say this before we jumped into our next question, uh, something that kind of reverberated through all of the responses in the last segment, and that is a very simple thing I say to everybody all the time. You know, this is not rocket science. You do not have to go to seminary for this. Let me say that again. You do not have to get big letters after your name to do these kinds of things. You just have to show up. We talk. We call this incarnational theology. That is, you put on flesh. You go in flesh. You go in person and deal with the issues that we face, and that's exactly what we're discussing here today. So well, let's jump back in on this, and we'll reverse the order. We'll start with uh, Kevin this time uh, and discuss this particular issue and why it's so important, you think, uh, each, each of you as individuals. Why is visionary leadership so imperative in any community? Why is visionary leadership so imperative in any community? Uh, I'm going to come at that from my, from my current context, which is, which is parole. Um, and, and I'm going to have to give a shout-out to, to my boss, Drew Adams, because he, he, is, he, he models this idea of visionary leadership. Why? Because parole has been done a certain way for a long time. All right, It's effective, but it, it is not... Um, it's effective, but at the same time, it's ineffective because what it does is it moves people who clearly have violated parole. They've broken the rules. They've gotten out of their lane, but and they go back to prison. All right, there's a public safety issue there. Absolutely, this needs to happen. However, what what my boss recognized was he saw that okay, maybe there's a different way. 
maybe we're not reaching people the way we need to. So to Andrew's point about mental health, all right, mental health, folks who are on parole who have mental health challenges diagnosed by DOC, some folks can't make it to the parole office because that's not in their abilities, all right? They can't get on a public bus to get there and people were getting violated. So what my boss approached it as, let's create specialized caseloads that meet people right where they are. So a mental health caseload, where they wouldn't use this term, but what we in this room would say grace, can't, grace can be applied, and agent discretion can be applied for that unique person in that mm -hmm. particular situation, <coughs> or the faith-based caseload. That's how I even got to the table in parole, was he recognized that there's a need for support inside the faith community, just like there is on the inside of prison, there's a need for that on, on, on parole or an all-female caseload, uh, or uh, we've got re-entry courts. So there's very specialized models of parole that have been built to address this. That doesn't happen without visionary leadership. Seeing a problem and how do I rework what I'm in currently to address that particular problem and make it better. The parole side of things uh, in this issue of uh, community tamping down crime uh, let's move to the pastor next. David, how do you see this uh, visionary leadership emphasized in your community? Yeah, I think when people, it doesn't have to be a pastor, it doesn't have to be, um, it, it could be anybody. If you seek first the kingdom of God and you trust Jesus for your life, your salvation, uh, the transformation needed to walk uh, in newness and godliness and in Christ, you begin to see things the way God sees them. And when you see things the way God sees them, it requires you to make a different, take a different approach. Um, and I think that when we're caught up in our own gifting, in our own ideas, you lose sight of what a neighborhood needs. Because really, the neighborhood needs just exactly what I need. I need a savior every day um, who will, would walk with me, encourage with me, rebuke me, correct me um, in the spirit and through the word. And in that, in that process of walking, um, when we see things the way God sees them, as Christians, there's something that kicks in in the spirit of God and says, do something. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be exactly what you talked about. It could be reading books with a three-year-old. It could be mentoring an ex-offender, walking through processes, helping a, a man start a business. Um, it could be um, just being in relationship with poverty culture, right? But in the sense, when we, when, when we, when mission becomes important, we're going to do something. And when it, I, I think that uh, visionary leadership needs to be provoked. I need, we need to share pictures of how God is working in and through my brokenness and how I've seen the neighborhood to the point where people catch a vision of what that looks like. So they actually start to take some risks and faith steps in their life to be able to see unity in a very broken neighborhood to the point where we see, we see reconciliation and transformation happen among the unity of faith-based community coming together and tackling serious uh, serious problems in the city of Indianapolis. This is uh, it strikes me as uh, almost right out of Amy Sherman's book, uh, Kingdom Calling, where she has about 400 different stories of folks mm -hmm. who are just doing their thing, man. Yeah. It's not, it, like we said, it's not rocket science. You don't have to go to seminary for this. You see a problem, you see a need, you address it. Uh, that's what Amy's book is all about. Amy is one of the uh, folks down at Sagamore Institute, 
And of course, we have here today Andrew Falk from Sagamar. Uh, Andrew, how do, how do you think about this in terms of visionary leadership? And perhaps tell us a bit of your own story coming into this. Sure. So Kevin and David have shared well about the, why this is so important. And, uh, but it's interesting to think about how, it's, how a vision is developed. And I mentioned uh, my practice uh, prior to this. And I spent several years working for the Attorney General of Indiana in criminal appeals. And in that process, I spent a lot of time um, obviously reading trial transcripts and seeing what the jury found um, the, the defendants guilty and then the, the sentence that was imposed. Um, and as I looked at the um, pre-sentence report, um, and, and in many, so many of the cases, the, the, the defendants were individuals who had been in trouble with the law before. And I began to see um, the problem of recidivism, the, the rate at which an individual is, is released from incarceration and ends back up in, in the Department of Correction within a certain period of time. And it's heartbreaking to see this cycle of crime. Um, and I began to, began to think about this, what can we do to help break this cycle? How can we, is, is our criminal justice system effective? How can we make it more effective? What can we effective? How can we make it more effective? What can we effective? How can we make it more effective? What can we effective? How can we make it more effective? What can we effective? How can we make it more effective? What can we effective? How can we make it more effective? What can we effective? How can we make it more do to affect? Now, I know public policy doesn't solve the problem, but it, it can, it can, if we have bad public policy, it, it can be very destructive. So I began thinking about what can we do and um, through God's providence, he took me out of that job and into a, a couple of others um, and gave me the opportunity to study our criminal justice system. And then it was through the study of that system that I was, I, I went to the Indiana Women's Prison and I began to see what the, some of the situation was there. Um, Indiana has about, it's been about 37% recidivism rates um, across the board for the last three or four years. Um, and uh, women is a little bit lower, closer to 30%, a little under 30%. Um, but even that's, that's too high. Um, and so some of the women in the prison have, have been thinking about what can we do to help this. And they realize, you know, we have, a, we have an abandoned house problem in, this, in the city of Indianapolis. And, and then there's two fundamental problems for women as they're in prison. It's like they're, they're, they're worried about where am I going to live when I get out? And what am I going to do with my life? How, what, how, well, how am I going to get a job? Because for a felon, it's so difficult to find work. And so the women in the, this public policy class that I've inherited began to consider, okay, is there a way we can address these three problems at once? And so that's what I've been helping working with them on this project, Constructing Our Future, to help them develop a training program um, that will give them the skills that they need to survive both hard <laughs> skills as well as life skills. Hard skills, how can they get a job? Um, and then how can we train them in construction so they can go out and work on abandoned houses, fix them up, and eventually live in them, and, but also have a place to live, and then develop the job skills to, to find employment. And, you know, that 30% recidivism rate, if, if we can give them a job, if we can give them um, a place to live, that recidivism rate drops far, far lower, um, sing single digits. And so that's what we're working toward. 
it really strikes me as I, as I hear you guys talking about this that um, it reminds me of this James 1 passage. I'll just read a couple of verses here. Uh, Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. When Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We see this kind of cyclic uh, pattern, not simply in a theological sense, but in the lives of individual people. And so this James 1 passage really does uh, speak to the issue of what we are seeing in front of us. And we have a tendency to say, well, you know, if they would just do this, or what about that? And we have all of these kind of trite little statements that we make. Instead of going back to passages like Leviticus 19 that says, if you see a stranger, if you see your neighbor, if you see somebody that's not like you and they have a need, you're supposed to love them. And in fact, this Leviticus 19 passage, the same word that God says, I have a covenant loyalty with my people, he says, I have a covenant loyalty with the stranger. Oh my word, when you start looking at this theologically and you realize this isn't just about Israel in the First Testament, this is about all people and he really cares about everybody, whoa, it's like this halogen headlight. Yeah, and you know, I think the church loves to um, to apply the, the verse from Hebrews 13 where it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We love that verse. We love that theory. Hey, I could entertain an angel. But you know what the next verse is? <laughs> Remember those who were in prison. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so that's, I mean, that, you know, not that I need extra motivation, but I love that verse for that, mm-hmm. that same reason. I mean, same context, same breath. Entertain others because you might entertain uh, an angel. Remember those in prison and visit them um, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Mm. This really reverberations and echoes from Leviticus 19. Exactly, yeah. In, in yeah. Hebrews 13. Uh, it really strikes me, just to make a general comment about uh, the text of Scripture, that uh, when versification was put in about 11 or 1200 uh, A.D., it really messed things up. We really lose context, and we have this sense that um, somehow we have to have a life verse or a verse for the day instead of seeing the whole context of something. So thanks for bringing that to our attention because that's really valuable and an important uh, component to uh, what we're dealing with. So let's, uh, let's go on to uh, other issues that uh, are impacting all of us. And I'm thinking now specifically, since we're into a scriptural connection mode, let's talk about the impact of Matthew 25 on the discussion of city churches. And let's talk generally about what does Matthew 25 say, and then how, is, how should that be applied throughout the churches, throughout the city of Indianapolis. I'm going to go right to the pastor on this one. I know he's shaking his head over there. Matthew 25, the discussion of city churches. Take it away, David. Yeah, I think when you look at Matthew 25, historically, um, the question you have to ask is, um, what does Jesus mean by the least of these? And when you really look at context and structure, the least of these are my brothers and sisters. Okay? I think we can get really generic about the stranger, the uh, angels unaware, um, But I do believe that Jesus is pretty specific about the least of these being those who are my brothers and sisters, those who have trusted Christ for their life. And I think that's what separates a church from a human, um, a human, uh, a human services level 
is that we as the church are not um, supposed to feel responsible to be a human service agency to distribute equal shares to anyone and everyone who presents a need. Um, Because when it comes to dignity, especially within our neighborhood and bringing dignity and reaching people, we want to be a place where people can come and land, but we want them to meet the Savior. And um, that's not proselytizing. Um, Maybe it is. I mean, I I think that it's just overutilized because we understand that the issues and problems that they're facing, the hope that they're going to feel and the hope that they're going to understand and the peace they're going to understand comes from Christ, not because I gave them a bus pass or a bag of food. And so when it comes to Matthew 25, our dilemma is that we are the church and the least of these are my brothers and sisters. And many of them are previously incarcerated. Many of them are on uh, paroles caseload, uh, faith-based caseload with Kevin. A lot of them uh, know Christ. They have run into issues and problems that have created barriers for their lives. There's believers that are addicted. The fo- problem is not that they don't know Jesus. They don't have people that are willing to walk with them and show them a new way and be patient and loving and kind and long-suffering. Yeah. Doesn't that sound like the God we know? Just sounds you know? vaguely familiar. <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to get to uh, Andrew and Kevin as we come back after our musical break, but I just wanted to pick up just before we uh, take off here for a bit of music and say that what David is suggesting here comes right out of Galatians Mm 6.10. It says there, so then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everybody, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. There it is. You're listening to RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site, Warp and Woof Radio. You're listening to RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. This is Warp and Woof Radio every Wednesday from 10 until noon. And every week we deal with issues that are concerning to us in Indianapolis as Christians. This week we are dealing with the issue of crime and the importance of community and putting that back a little bit. I wanted just to say this before we get into the Matthew 25 discussion with Andrew and Kevin that uh, I do a lot of radio interviews with Moody Radio. This last week I did one uh, that was uh, being asked, the question was being asked of me was, how is the church a public good and why is that so important? And I referenced a journal that comes out every week because it's called The Week, and it has a tendency to lean to the left a little bit, to, to lean toward the progressive liberal side of things. But something in this one particular article that was just unbelievable to me as I was reading this Uh, The man said that the danger of unchurching, he called it unchurching, the danger of this is that you take the church's authority out of the culture. And once you take the church's authority out of the culture, nothing is left but a deep chasm. And I love that. I appreciate Mm. that so much from somebody else who doesn't necessarily see everything the way I do, but certainly understands the importance of the church. And so we come back to this roundtable discussion now, Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to start with Andrew. Andrew, what is the power of Matthew 25, and why is this so important to community? You know, the interesting thing to me, as I have worked in the the prison and worked with people that, you know, I don't know where they stand before the Lord, if if they're believers or not. They may well be, they may not be. Um, But as we've begun planning our reentry model, there is a consensus that we need the churches to be involved. And there's a recognition that churches are good at enfolding individuals and helping them with their needs, helping them um, both with their physical needs, providing food and clothing and other supplies that they may need as they get out, 
but also to provide the accountability and the support and the encouragement that they need. And that's that's something that, you know, I think the church in many ways has um, fallen back, has failed in many of its responsibilities in, in societal engagement. But that is one area there's, there's still... Um, there's a recognition that they're strong in, and we need to see that only grow and increase. Um, the, the, the incarceration rate that we have, um, 99% of these people will be getting out, and the church needs to be stepping up to help them not only when they get out, but encouraging them now. I read a fascinating st- statistic this morning that of, the, um, of people who are visited, while they're incarcerated, their their recidivism rate is significantly lower than those who have no visits during during that time. So we can be visiting them while they're in, and we can be supporting them them as they get out. The issue of caring for people, and that again, incarnational theology, being up close and personal with folks uh, that desperately need that attention. Uh, Kevin, as a on the parole side of things, uh, how do you see Matthew twenty five being worked out? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Andy Stanley, who I'm. I believe coined the phrase that we, the church, need to run toward the mess. All right, and and by that meaning social ills, and I'm going to tack on to that that we need to be running toward the chaos, running toward the mess with the gospel. All right, and so I, I would start there. Uh, I, I'm going to slide a little bit down the spectrum from my friend David. Uh, we don't quite see eye to eye, and that's what I love about being in partnership with with one another is is we don't always agree. Uh, My perspective on the church is is Big C Church and my personal experience in all the churches I've been a part of is I don't believe that we as a church do a very good job of Matthew 25 inside the walls or outside the walls. Um, and, And so whatever that looks like, whatever the least of these are that God presses onto you and your circle, I don't believe that we as a church are doing that great of a job, and I think we can do better at that. Um, But I think that's where I heard a definition of the word humility recently, where it was tied to the Hebrew word anava. That's what uh, humility is in Hebrew. And that principle is, it's the concept of taking up your God-given space in the world. And so when I am walking in humility, I'm doing, I'm, I'm living out what God has called me to do, what he has put me here to do. If I fall short of that, then somebody else has to pick up the slack in the church or in the world. Um, if I do more than that, then I'm encroaching upon somebody else's giftedness. And so I believe that when, as a Christ follower and as churches, that if we occupy our God-given spaces, and so whatever our circle of influence is, we are going to carry the gospel forward and we're going to shine that light into the darkness and we're going to lend our hand to whatever need that is for whatever least of these that God is, is pressing onto us. Sometimes that's our brothers and sisters, as David pointed out. Sometimes that is people who don't yet know Christ, but I'm called to just introduce them to the concept or to see the church differently than they have previously. This is indeed a firefight, uh, if we use a a military term, 
uh, the concept of meeting the enemy head on. And we honestly uh, don't think that way, uh, quite frankly, as Westerners. We'd much rather talk about public policy, but if we're coming from an Eastern mindset, which is what the scriptures are, then we should have a different kind of mindset uh, to all of this. And so how, how do we actually engage these kinds of things uh, is really uh, the great question of all of life for us. How, how are we going to get our hands dirty and participate in a culture that uh, desperately needs us? Uh, one of the things that I was talking about on the radio this week was the issue of um, why is it that Christians are so uh, fanatical about being on social media and screaming in the darkness instead of wanting to just to strike a light, to, to set a candle aglow, uh, a small light, uh, we have people all over social media telling us about this, that, and the other thing, uh, but I wonder sometimes about what kind of public good they are in the community. So I wanted to talk generally about that phrase, the public good, and we could talk about pastoral leadership as public good, or the parole uh, as public good, as ideas, that is a think tank like Sagamore is, as a public good. So uh, let's start with the pastor again here. Um, from your vantage point, David, how do you see your role in pastoral leadership as a public good? Well, I mean, my mandate is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so it is to engage uh, believers to utilize their gifts for the public good, to express the love of Christ in a broken neighborhood, and to express the love of Christ to one another. Because the building up of the body has everything to do with expressing Christ's love through our gifts and our spirit-led gifts. And so my, my main responsibility is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so that means that we recruit and encourage individuals to walk out their faith in a way that means something to people coming to know him in a greater way. And uh, that means also uh, unbelievers and believers that as we walk out our gifts, that we are being built up as a body of Christ to love him and be united around the kingdom of heaven that we are all pursuing. And so pastoral ministry has everything to do with me giving away ministry, equipping the saints for ministry, and pursuing uh, this kingdom first until Jesus comes. Mm. That's a tremendous response to this. This reminds me again of Scripture. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, we're told very specifically that there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And uh, what's really fascinating to me is that when you walk into a dark room and you flip the switch, you don't see an active uh, firefight between darkness and light. No, the, the darkness just leaves. Light just is there. And I think that's what we really need to remember is that part of the kingdom of light is that as soon as we are present in a place, we dissipate the darkness. So let's move to Andrew and ask Andrew, how do you think the Sagamore Institute helps in this regard as it relates to a think tank and ideas? You know, lots of folks have a wrong thinking, wrong thinking about think tanks. They just think it's a bunch of eggheads sitting around, you know, <laughs> talking highfalutin, six-syllable words all day long. Tell us about how that is as a public good. So as we discussed a little bit earlier, part of a big part of what Sagamore does is, is we try to uh, figure out what are the problems in our society, society today, what are the challenges we face, and then how can we think about those in, a, in innovative ways? How can we think about them and propose innovative solutions? What's new? What will work? What has worked? What will work here? And so that's, that's the, the mission of Sagamore, um, and that's what I'm trying to do 
um, both at Sagamore and in, in the Indiana Women's Prison, mm. is taking good ideas and putting them into action. This strikes me, uh, again, right out of the book of Ephesians. I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, this uh, concept of uh, what we are doing in the world. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, get this now, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what we are doing in the church with the gospel, and Ephesians 3.10 tells us, we literally are taking the firefight to the other side. We are demonstrating to our adversaries, which in the context here, it's very clear, principalities and powers are not on our side here. And so we are taking the fight to them, looking for those good ideas, looking for the things that are beneficial to the culture. Kevin, from your vantage point, how do you see uh, this issue of what you do as a public good? Uh, I know I've told your listeners what my business card says before. It says agent of redemption. It doesn't say state parole agent because I see myself as an agent of redemption, not just for that man who's on paper, but for anyone who's connected to that man, anyone that I have in, have contact with. And so to put some skin on that, to put some flesh on that, what that looks like in my world is, is we have, my partner and I, my IMPD partner and I, we have people call us. We have moms, we have grandmothers who call us and say, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank you for investing in my son, in my grandson, when no one else, including everyone else in the family, gave up. You guys saw something good in him, and you guys invested in him. And that man, sometimes he makes it off paper, sometimes he doesn't. But the other end of that spectrum, but it's still public good, is we get a call. And that mom will say, I want to thank you. You did the right thing. You tried to help my son, but I'm sorry to say that, that my son's dead. He's now 10 toes up. And so they will call and share, thank you for doing what you do, the way you do it. Sometimes we have people who get off paper, who successfully complete parole, and they'll just swing back around. And they'll just stop in, because they know we're in our office every Wednesday, and they just stop in and say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what's going on in my life. You know, I started my own business. Uh, you know, I had a baby. So that relationship continues. Sometimes that public good, uh, I believe that, that that has generational influence. We were talking on break about how that generation happens in a community like David's, where they see me differently. They see Popo differently because now I'm sitting here eating dinner with them. Uh, they hear the gospel preached, uh, that kind of thing. But I've had fathers and sons on my caseload. Both, I'm supervising both the father and the son. And so generational curse or generational curses begin to get reversed, not because of something I'm doing, but because they see God and they see that as good. And now grandmas and aunties and kids they, they see something different. I can't tell you how many toddlers I've had when I'm standing there talking to their dad, point to a gun and say, pistol, say gun. Are you here to lock my dad up? Well, when they see me walk beside their dad in a positive way, something begins to change. Mm -hmm. And that's public good. Mm -hmm. This uh, concept really is a, a longstanding issue for us. So I'm thinking about this in terms of another question 
Uh, that is, what is the power of staying in the same neighborhood? We live in such a transitory culture. We're always moving. Uh, we have a tendency to just, you know, and, and, well, you know this, David, in pastoral ministry, three, three years and you're out, you know, you move someplace else, but never making a presence and deep roots, uh, generational good. Um, David's ministry now is going to be longstanding in, in the city of Indianapolis. He's going to be staying in the Brookside community. Kevin is staying in parole. People know he's there on Wednesdays. Andrew's staying in Indianapolis at Sagamore. He's, his uh, new nonprofit is being uh, literally uplifted underneath uh, the generous uh, beneficence of Sagamore. And so all of this staying power in the neighborhood, serving people over a long period of time, uh, you, got, you guys just jump in as you would like on this one. What is the power of that, uh, generally speaking, not only to the neighborhood, but in terms of time sequence? Well, just as much as I'm a dad of four kids, and there are four kids everywhere, um, I'm not going to hang out with my wife for five years and go, well, I did everything I could for these four kids, and then you know, I'm going to go find another four kids to hang out with to to bless and to minister. The beauty of parenting is that my children have 18 years in, in my household, and then they're hopefully called by God to something uh, that is um, attached to his church and his kingdom. But I, I still have that connection, but I've had 18 years of de developing, um, hopefully, godliness in my children. I think in the same way, the greatest issue that the church um, sometimes has is we're looking for greater or better uh, when really it's right in front of us, that we see God's kingdom in a way I see God's. I see more of God in the Brookside neighborhood um, than I've ever seen in any other ministry or any other place. And if there's one thing that I want in the transformation that God is doing in my life is to see more of Him, because when I see more of Him, my life transforms, others' lives transform, and ultimately in the process we see unity that you can't explain in a human sense or write a book about how to get except for that God did it. And when it comes to the long haul, especially in a very generationally poor neighborhood where the perpetual cycles, there's nothing new under the sun when the sin happens in our neighborhood. Um, but to see the transformation happen, it's going to be a long process of knowing the generations that cycle through our neighborhood to build up hope and see uh, a unity that e even that's seen in our church spill out into the neighborhood to the point where it's not just a church inside of our building; it's actually the church being the church in the neighborhood, and that's what that's where God's glory, I think, is seen in the most sense, and that's where I feel strongly called to a specific location for the long haul is because most ministries I've seen successful are those who stay for the long, the, the long lasting impression. And it's not about moving up or becoming popular or hitting a circuit because you wrote a book. Uh, it's really about being uh, the hands and feet of Jesus in a neighborhood for the long period. And that's what I feel called to. Some people don't feel called to that, but um, what we are seeing just even in the three years that we've been um, in Brookside neighborhood is I, I'm seeing so much of God. I don't want this to stop. And I want to see more of his kingdom built there because the work is not done. There you go. I, I think about this kind of concept all the time. And I, I think that we as human beings have this tendency to, to wonder 
uh, if I won't see change immediately in my lifetime? And this is quite, quite frankly a question that haunts me. Uh, it's a question that haunts me at, at age 60 where I realize that I'm closer to the end than the beginning and my responsibility is not what I leave behind but who. And so the emphasis, of course, is on people, the incarnational element of this, and then getting beyond this concept that somehow I have to see change in my culture, in my time period now. So, Andrew, Kevin, what do you all think about that uh, issue? Uh, speak to that particular issue of, of serving people in the same place over time. Just as, as David was speaking, I was thinking about how consistency and continuity build credibility mm. and, and compassion mm. too I think mm. and you could come up with some mercies I'm becoming a pastor <laughs> with my <laughs> use of repeated letters here but um, you know the longer you're in something the more you can the more effective you can become in many ways I think and you know just this week I was observing talking to a, a colleague about some progress that I was making at the prison and noticing how you know I've been there about a year year and a half and how I'm starting to see some real growth in some of the women with whom I'm working and it's really exciting to see but I think it's it's you know at, at the beginning they were excited to have someone come in and, and work with them and teach them and talk to them and help them implement their ideas and and increasingly they s trust me and and are willing to share their hurts and feelings and hopes and and but also beginning to see progress and I think that's the same way in in any environment where or in any situation where the the over time that consistency and continuity builds um, effectiveness and and isn't that the power of a think tank mm -hmm. that your thoughts your thinking birth ideas but those ideas take a long time sometimes to actually engage. In that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think depending on, on how you look at the problems that we face in crime and criminal justice and incarceration, I hope to see some progress in my lifetime. But I think it's going to take um, several lifetimes to really effectively address some of the, the issues and the problems that we face. One of the struggles I think that all of us have, and you know, going back just a flash uh, back to social media, is that I think there's this sense, because we have the immediacy of communication, that we're going to have immediacy of results. And that somehow these two things go hand in hand and, and in tandem with each other. And so you have people yelling and screaming back and forth about social issues. You know, there might be pieces of truth within these statements that people are giving, but they're expecting, there's this expectation that somehow there's going to be this end result. Like we get to the end of the fourth quarter and the gun sounds and the game is over. And that may well not be the case for any of us in our lifetimes. So, Kevin, sorry, I'm kind no, of okay. you know, jumping on this thing. What do you think from your vantage point of staying in a place a long time? Well, I'd have to share from a point of vulnerability and, and transparency in that I don't know what that looks like. Um, I don't know what that looks like, frankly, because the churches I've been involved with, um, while they may have been anchored in their community, um, I haven't been able to experience that impact because of that sense of place. Um, and, and so, but where I do see that, where I have tasted and understood that, 
has less to do with geography, although I, I, I am completely understanding the conversation where we're at, and that's part of what I think God is moving in my family as he's, as he's picking and uprooting us from one congregation to another. I understand the importance of a sense of place and my willingness to stay there for long-term commitment. But as I think about that, to me, the common denominator in that place is relationship. It comes back to, to me to a biblical principle of abiding. Am I willing to abide with one another? Because if I'm not abiding, it doesn't matter how long I live in the hood, how long I minister in the hood. If I'm not actually abiding with one another, then it doesn't matter. And the reality is, is that that provides stability. When I'm abiding, when I'm in relationship with someone, then that provides stability. And stability transcends all racial issues, all economic issues. Yes. It transcends geography, mm-hmm. relationship, and stability makes a difference. Now let me put flesh on that for you. There are men who I have to understand that, okay, he's not getting it, but all I can do is sow a seed and I see him on the next time. So that cycle that, that Andrew was talking about is the best possible thing. I had this conversation this morning before coming in here about one of my guys. The best possible thing that I can do for this man is to send him back to prison. Why? Because he's not living right. All right? He's running drugs and he's got guns. All right? He's a public safety issue and he himself is putting himself in danger. So my, the best possible thing I can do to keep him alive is to send him back to prison. And then the seeds that I've sown, and this is a faith-based guy. This is a guy who has a pastor as a mentor, all right? That same guy, the seeds that have been sown in him, I then have to wait for somebody else to water and for somebody else to bring to harvest. And then when he comes back, he'll be ready. Mm-hmm. Or I pray he'll be ready. Yeah. So this, this strikes me as, I, as I'm hearing you talk about this. I'm looking this book up to remind myself of the title of it. Uh, the Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot by Russell Kirk. This, the issue that you brought up about stability is really important and powerful to this concept of the conservative mind. Now, when I talk about being a conservative, I'm not trying to you know, tell you I'm Bill O'Reilly on the Fox News Network. That's, I don't yell and scream at people. To be a conservative means that you preserve the great ideas and ideals of life. And what you're doing in a community is you're preserving order. One of the great ideals of life is order and stability so that people know when they get up in the morning certain things are going to happen and that they can count on when they push that, that silver thing on the side of the toilet, you know, it's going to flush and work. You know, all that stuff matters. And we take some of these kinds of things for granted, but the folks we're talking about today are, don't take that stuff for granted. So we have to really rebuild those kinds of things into the community in which we're, we're discussing or serving. Yeah, we go on vacation, and my family texts us about five days in at Brookside and says, are you leaving us? <laughs> and and yeah. we're just like, no, no, we're coming back. Yeah. Like, we're, trust me, yeah. we're, we're coming back. And we'll get that hit yeah, three times all yeah. during vacation. Right. It's like, hey, we're just... We're just getting some rest. Like right. we're we're coming back, and we get that from multiple people based on the st- stable factor that Brookside and the family has created, mm-hmm. and 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 out of just the leadership and the care that we've had for people, right. you know. And folks in the community probably don't have that the wherewithal to actually take those breaks from in in that right. same kind right. of way. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really kind of striking to them that wow, I don't know anything about this. I wonder if this is right. what this means. Yep. So. 
Let's talk about this question. We've been talking about, and, and I, for those who are listening to the podcast, I think you probably figured this out, that we're a bunch of Christian guys sitting around here quoting the Bible and talking about how the Bible influences us. So I'm going to start with Andrew again on this question. How does culture impact a community? And you can take that in any direction you want to go. How does a culture influence a community? What kind of uh, tentacles does that culture bring with it? Can I just say, in every way? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. There we go. There we go. <laughs> culture influences a community in every way. Yeah. I mean, I I can't think of a way that culture doesn't. In, 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 I mean, from our music to our to our movies to our films to sports i mean it pervades the way we think it pervades the way we act it pervades how we're entertained it it impacts um the worldview that we develop mm -hmm. and um, a more difficult question would be how does it not affect mm -hmm. our community so let's flip that around and, and take it from that perspective and y'all jump in wherever you'd like uh, when we talk about the culture influencing the community, obviously it does. Now the question becomes, okay, how are we distinctive in our community other than what folks normally see? So what does the church provide in terms of distinctiveness? In our last little uh, conversation here just a moment ago, we talked about stability as being important. Uh, how does the distinctiveness of the Hebraic Christian view of life and things now influence that community, and in this case now for the good? We're not talking about, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not going to play, play ball anymore because that's a cultural thing, or I'm not going to go to the grocery store because that's a cultural thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how do we make uh, our community from a Christian vantage point distinctive from everybody else's communities. Jump in however you'd like. I'll, I'll come back, Mark, to your original question in, in, in culture and how do, how do I see it influencing. And, and one, one thing on that is I, I go back to when you first introduced me to this concept, and I like to tell the story about how I was learning about the voracity in which culture actually does influence, and then I'm reading my daughter a bedtime story, which was The Lion King, and the light came on. So what we were learning in our master's classes, I all of a sudden am seeing lived out as I'm reading my daughter this story going, oh my Lord, there's a worldview being presented here by Disney. All right, so I, I understand that and have come to grow in that. And, and now, in my context, I try to help men on parole see and understand that culture of all types—not not just media, but culture of all types—begin to influence. And so, when you're on the inside of prison, all right, what is acceptable in how you speak, how you carry yourself, uh, all of that is completely different from on the outside. And many times a man will, he will struggle to learn how to shift. He hasn't recognized that the culture influenced him and, he, and that that now is coming out. And so I have to point some of those things out to him that, well, you may not think that you're being offensive or you're being aggressive, but the person on the other side of that desk does think. They're scared and they're hitting the panic button underneath their desk during an interview. So that is culture having an influence. Sometimes that is helping a man see other cultural opportunities, meaning at one time he may have aspired to live what he culturally saw as, um, as aspiring to the best. I want to be on the cover of Thug Life, all right? 
And <laughs> then it's like, well, okay, that it, once you begin to understand, okay, that that is an influence. Culture is influencing my neighborhood, my friends, my circles. All of that influences me toward that. Now I have to replace that, which I think is your distinctiveness question. Mm -hmm. And so how I choose to do that is I, I choose to show a man, here's how you can live out biblical masculinity. And it doesn't matter whether you're wearing a badge and a ballistic vest or whether you're sitting there and you got a, a level six felony hanging over your head. Biblical manhood transcends all of that. And when I am distinctive and walk in that, as I strive to move towards that, then I am now having an influence. I'm a cultural influence on everyone in my circle of influence. I was sitting with an IUPUI student uh, this week talking about uh, their philanthropy studies, and they were discussing with me how uh, in one of their classes they're reading and talking about empathy all the time, and their professor is coming at this from a very naturalistic, purely scientism uh, perspective, whereas everything is just data and numbers driven, and this is the reason why we're doing this, because our genetic code and so on and so forth. But what I hear Kevin talking about is exactly something opposite of that and, and therefore very distinctive and that is that this is driven from the inside out this isn't something you can kind of lay a genetic code over and say there's empathy right there this is something where we say to ourselves you know what this is driven from a spirit driven uh, issue gentlemen uh, what else do you see in terms of distinctiveness in the culture culture divides i mean we all come from different cultures from you know the Carmel Christians who come down to Brookside to serve to the Brookside Christians who uh, grew up in a context and culture often divides based on misunderstanding. So we talk about disagreement, but really we just don't understand. Mm -hmm. And um, we are so quick to not understand each other's heart or motivation or how we have lived or what experiences we have had to the point where there is no monoculture. There are a multiplicity of cultures, but I think that's the beauty of the gospel mm -hmm. is it brings us under uh, uh, a culture that can bring unity because Jesus is involved and the Spirit of God is empowering that culture to be what it is supposed to be. And there's discovery because when you realize Jesus for what he has done on the cross for you you are repent you are walking a life of repentance and so you're putting off what was old and putting on what is new and as you walk in newness together to the same gospel that saved you and the same gospel that is saving you right you create a counterculture to all the multiple cultures that create division all over this country no matter what economic class or color you are and I think that that's where culture you, you that's even where our programs and our relationships have to be counterculture mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think oftentimes in the church I think the, the greatest division on Sunday morning is is uh, uh, the, the there is no diversity mm -hmm. and if we cannot get uncomfortable in our skin and mm -hmm. learn from someone else then we're not going to see the beauty of God in any other culture that 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 exists we're not going to see the beauty of poverty culture we're not going to see the, even the beauty of even uh, having so much that you have to give it all away because you're convicted by the holy spirit that all you got is not yours it's god's and so you can't understand those things unless you're sitting across the aisle from somebody and in, in, in uh, beginning to understand but uniting towards a newness that god is doing in you yeah 
So what you gentlemen have shared and tying a couple of things together, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the importance of humility as we work with the downtrodden mm-hmm. and the disadvantaged. And I, you know, it's, it's a, a distinctly Christian perspective, mm-hmm. but you know, how is it that we deal with, with society's outcasts and, you know, several hundred years ago, Great Britain dealt with their criminal problem by sending them off to Australia. And we can't send our um, men and women who are convicted of crimes off to Australia anymore. And so what we tend to do is we house them in prisons and we forget about them. And um, I drove by the women's prison for years without even ever realizing it was there, much less thinking about it. Um, But, you know, I was recently asked, how is it that, you know, they said, you know, I'm sure you know what the women you're working with did. How is it that you can work with them? Because it is, it is really sad. Um, and my first response was, it really takes a humility to recognize that but for the grace of God. And that's a cliche that you hear all the time, but in this case, it's so very true. There but for the grace of God, you know, I could have done the same thing. I could have gotten wrapped up in the same um, crimes. I could have gotten wrapped up in the same circle of influence uh, alcohol and drugs, and I could be there myself mm-hmm. if it, if not for the grace of God. So to have that humility, but the but the amazing thing too is to think about forgiveness, yeah, and to think about you know David, Paul, these are guys that committed adultery, murdered, mm-hmm. persecuted the church, caused havoc in the church, and yet God used them to become leaders of the church. And you know I don't know whether any of the women I'm working with, any of the men you're working with will ever be the next David or Paul, but they could be. Mm-hmm. And if we have that opportunity mm-hmm. to work with people who could be that kind of leaders, why wouldn't we do it? Yeah. So That's it takes it. humility and it takes, and it takes, I mean, you're aging of redemption, mm-hmm. but we're seeking redemption in these people. Yep. And it's going to bring about great cultural change as right. God works mm-hmm. in their lives through this, our lives. This really kind of brings us, uh, we're getting to the close here, just got a few minutes left for this program. And I'm going to ask you, each of you guys, to give us about a 30-second overview of, you know, landing the last words for the audience kind of thing. But because of where we've come from and the kinds of statements that we've made, I wanted to draw us back to, to the gospel again, to Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 to 39, where uh, Jesus makes this statement that's really very troubling. Uh, the only time I've ever heard it preached is when I preached it, because I, I really believe that this, this passage needed to be preached. And that's when Jesus uh, said that I came not to bring peace, but a sword. That the essence of what it means to be a Christ follower is to be divisive in the very essence of what it means to be divisive. That is, we are so distinctive. We are people of humility. We are people of empathy. We are people who care. The we are attitudes. people who love. Yeah. All of those Meekness. things so different, yeah. so different. And that's how Jesus divides. So when we talk about these kinds of things, generally speaking, uh, we need to keep that in mind. And I don't think we really say that enough generally uh, in the church today. So, gentlemen, um, let's start with uh, Kevin. Uh, Kevin, if you would uh, leave our listening audience with some final words, uh, how would you uh, want to end this program today? I would I would offer a two-sided coin. One side of that would be that that uh, perspective of humility that that I talked about. The concept of taking up your God-given place or space in the world. So, who you are and God who who He has made you to be, 
walk in that to its fullest. All right. Now turn that coin over. All right. And what I see in Luke 15, which is where Jesus demonstrates, he bypasses the church and he intentionally seeks out the sinners and the tax collectors. All right. So doing that models to me that it's not the Jesus that I expected. Because many times we want we want bougie Jesus, all right. We want cleaned up Jesus, but the reality is is that's not who he was, all right. He intentionally sought out what in today's language would be the drug and thugs, the pimps and prostitutes, all of these individuals. That's who he chose to hang out with. Now, did he do that um, and not go inside the church? No, he did not. He did both. But there's an intentionality in that. And so what I would leave your listeners with is be who God made you to be and walk in that fullness, but do that in such a way that you are pursuing those least of these that God has pressed on your heart. Yeah, get uncomfortable. I think um, disorienting dilemma of life is that we seek comfort over uh, the gospel. And the gospel demands that we get uncomfortable. And so you're talking to... Um, three men that um, one was pursuing an inter- uh, being an, a lawyer one was pursuing architecture uh, me I was just trying to find a church I could get comfortable with and God sent me to urban ministry and um, underprivileged neighborhoods and I have never turned uh, away and you're talking about trajectories that God had us on that we could have lived life and probably said, you know, a lot of things at our funeral that we were good men who did okay things and took our kids to Disney World and Asia and Europe and did all these fun things. But ultimately, when God got us uncomfortable and created a disorienting dilemma where we didn't have answers or a solution except for Jesus, we actually began to realize that Jesus was also the answer for us. And what God changed me in was... Um, I saw the gospel for what it really was, and I just got on board with the uncomfortability of my life. What we do at Brookside is not comfortable. Um, I do not get excited about getting up and preaching on Sunday morning. I don't. I um, Because I know that um, I'm walking into a den of lions that uh, need assistance, help, and love and perspective. We got a family who is just about to lose their kids and they have been in the system for 20 months and they have found the family unfit. And um, it breaks our heart. We know these uh, this family and they have done nothing wrong except for they're just unable to care well for these kids. Um, I could tell hundreds of stories of the uncomfortability in the morning and the crying and the tears, but just trying to walk out the gospel with people uh, that are seeking him in purity and love. And that all started because God has got a, God got us uncomfortable and we don't want to leave that uncomfortability because we see so much of Jesus in it. I like Kevin's two-sided coin analogy. I think it's easy for us to look at our society and see all the problems, um, specifically in this, this spectrum, to see the problems with the 2.3 million people who are incarcerated, the, the millions more who are on probation and parole, um, and increasing, uh, of concern for Christians, increasing secularization in our society. Um, and there's, there's a, 
you could really become discouraged about that. And yet, you know, I hope from the two hours we've spent together, um, our listeners can can have hope and see that there are good people doing good things. And, you know, we need to preach the gospel. That's That's how hearts are changed. But we also need people to be compassionate in their jobs, whether it's in law enforcement or, or anything else, going into the prison, visiting um, those who are there. Um, God can use you where you are and just watch for that and be humble and um, be willing to, to take the lead, take the opportunity for him to direct you in, in how you can serve and how you can help. Do good, do good, do good. Sounds very much like our tagline. Gentlemen, we're grateful. Andrew, David, Kevin, thank you for joining us for two hours today. You're listening to Warp and Woof Radio. You hear us every Wednesday from 10 until noon. And next week, we have a special treat. We have Terrell Sarver coming back in with some of the men who have uh, done a book with him called Transformed. We're going to hear from black leaders, black men in the community in Indianapolis, and they're going to talk to us not only about their own personal transformation, but what they see as the necessity of transformation within black neighborhoods. We come to you every Wednesday from 10 until noon, and we look forward to hearing from you. Please uh, check us out at ComeniusInstitute.com. You'll find all kinds of uh, podcasts and iTunes and connections to my essays and video clips and all kinds of things. Also visit WarpAndWoof.org. That's W-A-R-P-A-N-D-W-O-O-F.org. And you will find us on social media all the time talking about all different kinds of issues. But until next week, we will see you then.